I hope it's not getting old uh, to hear these words. This is the third week running now where we've been reflecting on this prophecy from the lips and the pen of Isaiah, the prophet. And so this morning, as we continue our study uh, through the four titles that Isaiah spoke about the coming Messiah, uh, 700 years before he was actually born, um, we're going to tackle the third one of the four, which is Everlasting Father. Now, this may seem, at first, like a strange title to give to Jesus. As most of us, I assume, are accustomed to thinking of Jesus as the one and only Son of the Father in heaven. So, maybe you're a little confused about the identity of who's who here. But there's good reason for this title, despite that, and we'll get to explaining that in just a few moments. But beyond that challenge, there's one other challenge here as we look at this theme, at this topic, this title, One other challenge I want you to think about with me by way of introduction this morning. For this title, to be quite honest, is um, fraught with perceptions, misperceptions, I might say. So let me introduce the significance of this title with a bit of a warning for you this morning. I want to tell you kind of where I'm going here, but get you to think very carefully with me about the significance of this title. You see, because unfortunately, the value of a father's loving presence and blessing to his children is not appreciated in our culture as it used to be. Have you noticed this? I mean, really, have you noticed this? That the role of fatherhood is not respected and appreciated as it used to be? Something has shifted in our culture over the last 50 or 60 years, and not for the better. Not for the better, not at all. So as we think about this particular title, more than the other ones, we have to bear in mind that the present reputation of fatherhood in our culture and the negative influences of fatherhood in our own experience can filter the way that we think of this title. They can color it or shade it a bit. Sadly, fatherhood is not what it used to be back in the days of Andy Griffith, one of our favorite black and white TV shows to watch with our own kids. Instead, our culture has been littered with broken families and with the absence of fathers from the lives of their children. Even from families that are still intact, the fathers are often absent. So mom and dad may not be separated or divorced, but for many kids, their father's commitment to work or to um, something else, some hobby or whatever, uh, that commitment takes him away from meaningful family time. In fact, in doing some research uh, recently, I came across a few, I'd say, startling statistics about this reality in our culture. For example, did you know that according to the Pew Research Center, a really reputable research organization, Over the last 50 to 60 years in America, the percentage of children raised in a home with both of their birth parents has plummeted from about 73 to 75% in 1960, that's three out of four children, to less than 46% 
in 2014, just a few years ago. That's a shift of 25%. So where it used to be the case that three-quarters of all kids were being raised in a home where both birth parents were present, now it's less than half. Less than half. That means over half the children in our society are now growing up without both of their birth parents present. And the vast majority of the time, it shouldn't surprise us that the one missing is the father. Now, here's another snapshot of how fatherhood is faltering in our society. It's captured in an article titled, The Modern Excuse for a Parent. How's that title grab your attention? It's written by Clifton Chadwick, and here's what he writes. And this, is, this has to do with the parents that are still together. Bear that in mind. Of the less than 50% who are in a home, less than 50% of children in a home with two parents, particularly both birth parents, here's what Clifton Chadwick, Chadwick writes. He says, ask yourself who you are. Hold that thought for a good long while and then ask what it is that you want your children to be and what you're willing to do to help them achieve that. Over the years, he writes, I've counseled many parents about how to raise their children. And one recurring issue is time. How much to devote and how. Many fathers have told me that they do not have enough time to spend with their children, so they aim for quality time. Well, that's good as far as it goes, but it's an excuse and a mistake. Quality time with children is nice. A visit to the wild wadi, a desert safari, a good movie, going to see a football match, all good. Time together doing interesting things. But the truth is that children do not want quality time. They just want time and lots of it. In this multicultural and globalized world, parents must work harder than ever to build strong and affirming relationships with their children. There are too many distractions for children and also for fathers and mothers. Being together with your children is very important and requires conscientious effort. Most fathers do not understand what fathers are for. They think that fathers exist to provide economic support and a moral example for the family. But that's only part of it, and not the most important part. Fathers are leaders. Fathers are guides. Fathers are friends and symbols. But they can't be anything if they're not present. Boys do not learn what it means to be a man from a computer game. They learn from watching and interacting with their fathers, their uncles, their grandfathers. Girls learn to admire and trust men by being able to admire, trust, and love their own father. And yet here's the problem. The average number of minutes a father spends talking to his children each day, do you know what it is? Seven. Seven minutes a day. You cannot shape and form your children in seven minutes a day. So as we think about this title, that's the baggage we're dealing with. Let's be honest about it. And let's get something straight right out of the gate this morning. If we're going to talk about the fatherhood of God, 
we have to make sure that we don't project onto him all of the issues that we have with the concept of fatherhood. All the misperceptions and misconceptions about fatherhood in general or the failures of our own fathers in specific. So let's be careful to recognize that we may tend to look at our everlasting father through the lens of our relationship with our own earthly fathers. Let's be careful about that. When we do that, we might see a father who's never satisfied. Perhaps you seldom have ever heard the words, I love you or I'm proud of you. You tried to be perfect for your dad because you longed for his acceptance and his affirmation, but it was never there. When we see our eternal father as one who's never satisfied, what do we do? We act like we need to earn his love and we have a hard time resting in it, receiving it. We don't believe that it's there for us. Or maybe you, maybe you had a father who was always angry. Maybe when dad was home, you had to walk on eggshells around your house. At any moment, dad might lose it and start yelling. Maybe your dad said words to you like, you're never going to amount to anything. You're a loser. We never meant to have you in the first place. You're a mistake. Perhaps your father was abusive physically or verbally or in some other way. Perhaps he hurt you deeper than words could ever tell. If you think of your eternal father in that way, as one who's always angry or hurtful, you'll fear him, you'll avoid him, or you'll attempt to calm him down. Or again, you know, maybe you had a father who was seldom there. Maybe you just never saw him. Maybe he came home long enough to eat and change clothes before he left again. Maybe he deserted you and your mom. May have been out working long hours or drinking extra hours or something else. Whatever the reason, he just wasn't there. When we view our eternal father through that lens as one who's never around and never available to us, we begin to question his very existence, not to mention his care and concern for us personally. So friends, these are examples of the challenge that this title evokes for many people. And as we think deeply about it together, we have to be very careful to recognize how our own father's shortcomings can shade the meaning of this title. Let's affirm together that God is the ideal model of fatherhood, not a conglomeration of every shortcoming that the title might represent. Let's affirm that our Heavenly Father's love for us as children is completely perfect in every way. Might be hard to imagine, but that's the truth. He's not the Godfather. He is the Heavenly Father, the ultimate Father. So let's imagine all the best things about fatherhood and then begin to invite a revelation from God's Word to show us the true value of how God relates to us as eternal Father. Let's rethink what it looks like and what it means for our lives to be fathered by a dynamic, loving presence that will never fail us or forsake us.
In fact, here's an illustration for you uh, that I think captures the heart of what I'm aiming to communicate about the Lord this morning. It's a story told by Ron Mule. He writes, a little boy was helping his father move some books out of an attic into a more spacious quarters downstairs. It was important to that little boy that he was helping his dad, even though he was probably getting in the way and slowing things down more than he was actually assisting. You get the picture. But that boy had a wise and patient father who knew that it was more important to work at a task with his young son than it was to move a pile of books efficiently. Well, among this man's books... There were some rather large study books. Maybe he was a pastor, I don't know. And it was quite a chore for the boy to get them down the stairs. Either that or a doctor. They have a lot of books too. As a matter of fact, on one particular load, the boy dropped his pile of books several times. Finally, he sat down on the stairs and wept in frustration. He wasn't doing any good. He wasn't helping He wasn't strong enough to carry the big books down the narrow stairway. And it hurt him to think that he couldn't do this. He couldn't help his daddy. Without a word, the father picked up the dropped load of books and put them right back into the boy's arms. And then he scooped up both the boy and the books into his own arms and carried them down the stairs. And so they continued for load after load, both enjoying each other's company very much, the boy carrying the books and the father carrying the boy. So before I say anything else, just think about that for a minute. Picture it in your mind and imagine yourself as that little boy or girl. Pause for a moment and contemplate your heavenly father carrying you, showing you his heart, his love, his presence. Picture yourself as the one in his arms. Can we do that just for a minute? Let's think about it. Lord, this is the image of a good and loving Father that we want to carry with us from day to day as we think about you and what it means to relate to you as our eternal and everlasting Father. So as we continue to think about this title, Everlasting Father, for the next few moments, 
I want you to resolve to put your earthly father's failures out of view for a few minutes. Just set them aside and deal with that some other time. I want you to continue to focus your heart with me on your eternal father's presence and blessing. Consider with me what it means to let your life be carried in his loving arms. So here's one thing that it means for us to think of Jesus in this way. As you think about this title that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 9, verse 6, notice that the identification of Jesus with the Father was meant to signal that God's promised Messiah would be one with God and embody his heart. That's the significance of this title given to Jesus. We all know the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, right? You've probably prayed it hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times, although we don't necessarily do it routinely here at CCV. I'm sure many of you grew up uh, praying that prayer, if not personally, corporately. And it begins with a familiar phrase, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, how do you imagine Jesus saying those words? How do you say them? How have you heard them said? Is it, you know, kind of in keeping with um, Deej's little joke here, is it something like this? Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Or is it something like this? Daddy, I want your name to be holy in my life. Which one is it? Which one do you suppose was the way that Jesus addressed the Father? Have you ever been in the presence of someone who actually prays using the term daddy? I know a few people that do this routinely, and I've prayed with them a number of times over the years. And I don't know about you, but it always strikes me as a little, just a little uncomfortable, a little overly familiar. Not that it's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying there's something about it that's a little awkward, a little unfamiliar. I mean, it's unfamiliar to me because I don't routinely do it, but it seems overly familiar to address God that way. Daddy, have you ever prayed like that? It feels intimate and tender. Well, in reality... The Aramaic term that Jesus commonly used in addressing his father was the word Abba. Let me tell you something fascinating about this word. Most scholars recognize that Abba in Aramaic is the equivalent of daddy in English. And yet, ironically, this Aramaic term uh, is used specifically at least three times in the New Testament, and each time you find it, it's actually kept in Aramaic instead of being translated into English. Isn't that interesting? So you'll look at these verses that I'm about to share with you, and you'll find that they actually say, Abba, Father, instead of Daddy, Father. Why would that be? 
Well, perhaps, let me suggest, perhaps, I suspect anyway, that the translators are uncomfortable with the term daddy, putting it on the lips of Jesus or on the lips of the Apostle Paul just seems a little awkward. And yet, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, according to Mark 14.36, Jesus actually prayed like this, Abba, Father, Daddy, everything is possible for you. Would you take this cup from me? Yet not what I will, but what you will be done. That's how Jesus prayed. And then we see, and I don't think it's any coincidence, we see the Apostle Paul picking up the same terminology and actually emphasizing the theological significance of it in two different places in his letters. And frankly, I think this suggests, quite likely, that the use of the phrase, Abba, Father, may have been common in the early church. Note that Paul writes first in Romans 8.15. He says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul's saying, By the presence of the spirit of Christ within you, you cry out to God in the same way that Jesus did. Abba, Father, Daddy, help. And then again, he comes back to the same idea in Galatians 4, verse 6. And then again, you know, the, the translators refuse to write the word Daddy. They keep it Abba. Galatians 4, verse 6, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So consider then that we too, like Jesus, are inspired to call out Abba Father, our Daddy in the heavens, as we come to God in prayer. And because the Spirit of Christ in us has brought about our adoption into the family of God and has given us the identity of sons and daughters of God, our hearts naturally yearn to connect with God as our heavenly dad. This is precisely how Jesus himself connected with God and his spirit within us inspires us to do the same. So all this then is part of the confusion that we experience, I think, when wondering how the term everlasting father could actually be applied to Jesus. Wait, we're good Trinitarians, aren't we, right? We think, wait, isn't this mixing up the identities of the Father and the Son? Which one's which? How could Jesus be called the everlasting Father? And the answer is, well, it, it could mix up their identities, but it doesn't have to, and here's how. As I mentioned last week, the names that are listed in Isaiah 9-6 are used by Isaiah to make it clear that the Messiah would be no ordinary man. He would, be a mere, he would not be a mere political or military leader 
or the king of some earthly dominion or a general that would lead his people in conquest over the nations of the world. These titles tell us in no uncertain terms that the one to come would be far more than a common person, a good teacher, or even a prophet. There had been dozens of those in the history of Israel. No, Isaiah says, this coming Messiah, the one that God has promised to send to his people, will be absolutely unique. Something never before seen in the history of the world. He will be God in the flesh. God become man. God the Father, with all his power and might and wisdom and glory, somehow fully revealed in the person of Jesus. So the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament makes this same point in a little different way, and we sang about it, and we prayed into it at the end of that song. Matthew 1.23 reads, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God the Father, with us. That's what Jesus was, God with us. Not get, you know, God out there somewhere, up there somewhere, beyond the boundaries of the universe, but God right here in our midst. God the Father walking around as one of us. That's what the title Almighty God suggested, which we looked at last week. And likewise, that's what the title Everlasting Father also signifies. But why else would Isaiah use this particular reference? Well, remember now that the people who first received this prophecy, the Jewish people, had no concept of the Trinity at that time. This is before the idea or the concept of the Trinity was ever revealed to them. They didn't conceptualize God as as both one and three at the same time. One divine essence and three co-equal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. At that time, they only knew God as Father. So when Isaiah identifies the coming Messiah as the everlasting Father embodied, he's simply communicating to them in the only way that they could possibly grasp what he's talking about. They would have never understood any other term. But this term says the heavenly Father that we all know and love and worship is coming to be with us. Isaiah was saying God himself would be their savior. God himself would be their deliverer. God himself would be their king. But he was also saying one more thing that's important to recognize. He was was saying this, that the Messiah to come would carry and represent the heart of the Father, our everlasting Father in heaven. To put it in another way, the Father heart of God is supremely embodied in Jesus. So in that sense, it's not inappropriate to give him the title that you might think should be reserved for his father. When Jesus came, 
grew into manhood, began to teach, began to talk about his identity, began to explain what God was up to, how the kingdom of God was present. Notice some things that he said about himself that were received by people at the time as shocking, if not crazy. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. You know what happened after he said that? They tried to stone him. They tried to kill him because they thought he was guilty of blasphemy. Then another time when Jesus was speaking with his disciples, we have this fascinating exchange. This is from John 14, 6 through 10. They pose a question. Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Then Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? So in other words, anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father because Jesus fully reveals the Father's heart, represents the Father's heart. And the only one who can fully reveal God the Father is God himself. The Hebrews, the book of Hebrews puts it another way. Hebrews 1 verse 3, helpful and insightful reference on this subject. The the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. But about the Son, God says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. So I know it's a little confusing to think about the identity of each member of the Godhead. What I'm suggesting is that there's a little bit of fluidity there. There's a little bit of, you know, uh, what's the word? Cross-pollination or something, you know, where, where the, what's true of the Father is also true of the Son because they're of the same substance. So in that sense, it is not inappropriate to identify Jesus as the everlasting Father. That brings us then, with the time we have left, to the second part of this title, everlasting or eternal. Let's spend a few minutes on that. What I want you to think about here and what I want you to recognize with me is that as our eternal or everlasting Father, we should realize that everything about Jesus is both unending and unchanging. And that is really good news. Really good. You see, by using this word eternal or everlasting in connection with Father, we are distinguishing, again, which Father we're speaking of here. This is what sets apart our Heavenly Father from our earthly fathers. This Messiah to come, Isaiah wanted us to know, would be no ordinary earthly father but the eternal Father, the eternal Father. You know how, like they say, the Ohio State University? 
This is the eternal Father with a capital T at the beginning of the. This is the one to whom all of humanity can rightly be considered sons and daughters. The only one. Christ Jesus, the anointed one. Isaiah is telling us that Jesus, the coming Messiah, is eternal, everlasting, and without beginning or end of days. And on this point, he wasn't alone. This is like the message of Scripture through and through. Scripture resounds with exclamations of this truth about Christ. For example, listen to these few passages which speak of the eternal existence of Jesus Christ. In John 1, 1 and 2, the famous beginning of John's gospel, the prologue to John's gospel, he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God, with God, in the beginning. That is, before anything else came to be. Then there's John 8, 58. These are the words of Jesus himself, again, getting himself in trouble with the religious leaders of his day because they didn't understand what he was talking about. He says, I tell you the truth. He's answering their questions about who he is and what he came to do. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. Do you recognize those words? I am. That's the name of God given in Exodus at the burning bush. That's what the name means. God identified himself as the I am, the great I am. So when Jesus says this, before Abraham was born, I am. What do you think he means? He's identifying himself with the eternal Father. Hebrews 1.8, but about the Son, God says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. We looked at that just a moment ago. That's the short version of the beginning of that verse. And then a few verses down, the theme is revisited again in verse 10. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. How's that for a description of Jesus? Now, of course, this is not anywhere close to an exhaustive list. I'm trying to just give you a few examples to think about here to, get, to give you the idea of how Scripture speaks consistently about the eternal nature of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In fact, even in Isaiah 9, the text that we're looking at, the idea gets revisited. Not just in, it's not just in verse 6. It's, it's presented twice again in verse 7, the very next verse. Look at how Isaiah describes the reign of the Messiah. And notice the terms that he uses. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So there's a clever little phrase that was coined by Buzz Lightyear, 
to infinity and beyond. As if that's even possible. You, you, can't, you, know, you can't go beyond infinity. That's the funny thing about it. And yet, that's, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. If ever there was anybody or anything of whom it could be said, to infinity and beyond, Jesus is the one. He is. He is alone. The Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And in that sense, Jesus embodies the everlasting Father forever and ever. We've been reminded over the last few years that nothing in this world lasts forever, does it? Things are constantly fading out of popularity. Things that were once considered essential, necessities in our society are now Desolate, obsolete, forgotten. There are all kinds of things that go that way, the way of decline. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. Businesses and corporations don't last. Governments and kingdoms don't last. Even people, right? People that we find dear to us don't last. No matter how much you love someone, you can't hold on to them in this life forever. The only way that you'll stay connected with them is in the life to come, which lasts forever, through, in and through Christ. But the, the point of all this gloom and doom here for a moment is, is just to emphasize for you that Jesus is different from all that. Jesus is different God promises in Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And what I'm trying to explain, friends, is that that's why the eternality of Jesus actually matters to us. This is an important thing to think about, to contemplate, to recognize and respect about the Lord. We should care to know deep in our knowers that Jesus will never cease to exist and will never change. He's faithful to the very end of the ages. All the good things that he is to us now, he will always be. He will always be our provider, our protector, our savior. He will always be our refuge and our strength. His love for us will never cease, either in this world or the next. One of my favorite worship songs puts it this way, his love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out. In Christ, we are eternally blessed and secure. And because he's everlasting, the scriptures say that there are everlasting results for us, blessings for us, joy for us. His eternality has consequences for us, those who know him. Listen to just a few quick examples as we wrap this up. Isaiah 54, 11, the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's just a little snapshot of heaven, the kingdom to come. Everlasting joy for us because we're there 
with him in the presence of our eternal Father. Psalm 1611, you've made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Does that sound any good? Does that sound inviting or appealing to you? Eternal pleasures in the presence of God? What I'm saying is that because Jesus is everlasting and eternal, our life in him is unending as well. Jesus himself put it this way in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. That's an invitation, friends, to know Jesus and appreciate what you can receive from him that you can't find anywhere else. Let me close with a question for you. Have you ever met a good parent who just stopped loving their own child because of that child's misbehavior? Of course not, right? All the kids are laughing now. No, that would be contrary to the definition of a good parent, right? A good parent would never stop loving their child despite their misbehavior. So stop and think about this then, these verses that I've just shared with you for a quiet moment, and just ask yourself the question, how long will my everlasting Father continue to love me no matter what I do wrong? Think about that for a moment. Let me wrap this up with just uh, a few more thoughts. We're, we're just about done here. Listen, when everything else around you is shifting and changing, may you clearly see that Jesus is the embodiment of the everlasting Father. Jesus embodies the everlasting Father whose love for us will never be shaken or compromised. This title, Everlasting Father, is not just about some heady intellectual um, thoughts regarding the eternal nature of Christ. I mean, you can kind of think of it that way, but this is practical. This is helpful. This is, this is powerful because what it does is it gives us perspective, eternal perspective. This matters because it helps us think differently about the momentary struggles that this life brings our way. You understand what I'm talking about? Anybody have any issues in life? Any struggles? Come on now. You can admit it, really. It's hard, isn't it, in the moment to think about those things and to keep them in perspective? 
But this is what the Word of God instructs us to do. 2 Corinthians 4.18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So eternal perspective really matters. I want to close this morning with a letter supposedly written from a young lady away at college. Some of you might have heard this. It's been years, I think, since I've shared it, but I have shared it before. And uh, as I was thinking about this message, it just came back to mind again as a perhaps a helpful example of keeping things in their proper perspective. Dear Mom and Dad, the letter reads, It's now been three months since I left for college. I'm sorry for my thoughtlessness in not having written before this. I want to bring you up to date, but before you read on, you'd better sit down. Okay? Are you sitting down yet? I'm getting along pretty well now. This picture and concussion that I got when I jumped out of my apartment window when it caught fire after my arrival here is pretty well healed. I only spent two weeks in the hospital, and now I can see almost normally, and I only get these sick headaches about once a day. Fortunately, the fire and my jump were witnessed by Roger, an attendant at the gas station, and he was the one who called the fire department. He also visited me in the hospital, and since I had nowhere to live, he was kind enough to invite me to share his apartment with him. He's a very fine young man, and we are planning to get married. We haven't set the date yet, but it will, it will be before my pregnancy begins to show. His divorce is final now, and he shares custody of his three children. Now that I've brought you up to date, I want to tell you that there was no fire, I did not have a concussion or skull fracture. I was not in the hospital. I am not pregnant. I am not engaged. And truthfully, there is no divorced man in my life. However, I am getting a D in art and an F in biology. (laughs) And I wanted you to see these marks in their proper perspective. Your loving daughter... Now, that's a funny exercise in perspective. The perspective of a parent, of course, is what it alludes to. But let me throw a twist at you here. As we close this up, I want to throw a little twist at you, a little curveball. What about the perspective of a broken child? What if this letter were received by our everlasting Father, the one that we've been talking about all morning? And what if every calamity described in it were actually true, not fabricated? How would he respond? If you can't imagine your eternal Father still loving you despite all that, whatever failures mark your own life, then your perspective of his eternal fatherhood is not as it could be. It's not completely aligned with the truth and grace that Scripture represents to us. Does God approve of those behaviors? No. But does it change his love for us? No. 
Speaking of Jesus, the Apostle John tells us in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That grace and truth embodied in the Son comes from the Father, the eternal, everlasting Father who delights in calling us his children. So let's pray.